Welcome to Deacon's Pod. I'm Deacon Dennis. Say hello to my co-conspirators, Paulist affiliate deacons, Deacon Drew and Deacon Tom. Hello, this is Deacon Drew. Hello, this is Deacon Tom. Good afternoon, my friends. Good afternoon. How's everybody doing? I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, I, uh, I just got back here I, after my summer travels up north and uh, visited family and friends and had a very nice time and uh, back here and hard to believe it's, you know, we're moving toward the fall. The summer's coming to an end. My first and oldest grandson is off to George Mason University. Yesterday he was born and today he's off to college. You is, know? is that, but, uh, I've been meaning to ask somebody who is affiliated or somehow is anything to do with George Mason University. Is that where they invented the mason jars? <laughs> crickets. Yeah. Crickets. Really? Is this, yeah. thing, is this thing on? Me. Is this thing I'm on? Not, yeah. <laughs> you think this is Jeopardy? <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, uh, God. All right. Fine. And that's <laughs> when the wheels came off. That's yep. right. So is this your first? This is not your first, for sure. It's my first going off to college. The yeah. oldest, yeah. It's yeah. a deja vu. And then we've got uh, eight other grandsons that will be following. So... It's going to be for the, all you young people out there listening for, to this podcast. Uh, yeah. Grandpa Tom's. Yeah. Grandpa's broke. Grandpa's yeah. broke. Go away. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. My oldest grandson's going off to college too, Tom. So there we go. I spent my life in finance, $65,000, $85,000 for tuition for a year. Just, I'm, more, mm. I'm a little wondering how they're going to pay that back, what kind of job it takes to pay. Yeah. And by the way, the interest rates on loans are seven, eight, nine, ten percent, and interest yeah. begins on the first draw. So, I'm thinking, yeah, it's a, yeah, so it's a this challenge. Is, this is great. So, so far, we've uh, dated ourselves. Yeah, and we just did the <laughs> the financial show. So you're all up to date with that. Yep, yep. Well, well I'm doing fine. I just got over COVID. <laughs> thanks for asking. I'm doing all right. Well, Drew uh, asked how we're doing. I know. <laughs> Did we got CN Financial. I'm, I'm sorry that you got I, I should have not gone first. I should have let you bring us down to the COVID hole. Well, yeah, right. You bring it down now. Yeah. See, why wouldn't people listen to this thing? I don't understand. It's got everything. I'm sorry that you had COVID, but I'm happy that you're over it. Tom, yes, I'm sorry you. that uh, your family apparently is going into bankruptcy to put your grandson through college. <laughs> I might lose the internet. I personally am doing just fine. Thank you very much. I have uh, I have not been sick lately, and I have not got I'm not received any bills that I'm unaware of or anything that's coming in the mail. Poverty and finances and paying for things it is a critical issue. It's something that our church has always been concerned with. Jesus is the one who said you're always going to have the poor with you, and he didn't mean that in a good way. And then, uh, of course, St. Francis took off all of his clothes in the middle of the town square just to demonstrate how much he was giving up everything he had. And I'm not going down some preaching trail. I'm, I'm setting us up for the fact that we have a guest on today who's going to talk about just those things. Oh, at last, a point. Very good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Our guest today is Gerard Thomas Straub, or Jerry Straub, I think. He, he is an informal guy. He's got an interesting background. We're going to let him tell all our listeners all about that. But before we do bring him on here, it would be important to mention that he will be speaking at the 2023 Gallagher Talk in Grand Rapids, Michigan at the Catholic Information Center, which is, of course, affiliated with the 
St. Andrew's Cathedral in Grand Rapids, which is a Paulist church and also the home church of the Grand Rapids Diocese. It's on September 28th. He'll be making this talk. You can go in person or you can watch him online. You can register online at catholicinformationcenter.org. And we'll be talking to him also about his book, Reading Thomas Merton and Longing for God in Haiti, because Jerry is now living in Haiti and has been— He's in Haiti. Haiti, and he's been there since— Have you seen the news lately about Haiti? Well, that's what he's going to talk about. It's not always a fun place to be. No. not the tourist attraction it might have been at one time, especially where Jerry lives. uh, Oh, yeah. So he's been there, I think, since 2015. He'll confirm that for us. And he has basically built and runs and operates an orphanage with some help, but he needs more help for sure. Yeah, month to month, make a donation. This is is just this guy trying to follow Jesus, and I have his website. I'm just going to say it one more time. We'll mention it later in the show. It's Santa Chiara Children's Center. So it's S-A-N-T-A. C-H-I-A-R-A, so that's St. Clair in Italian, cc.org. And if you go there, you can send this guy a donation because this is heroic what this guy is doing. And and he's a real down-to-earth guy, as you'll see when we talk to him. He's just a wonderful human being when you consider what he's putting up with on a daily basis and what he's been through. And he has quite a story, doesn't he? Doesn't he, Tom? Yeah, I'd like to point out he also has another uh, website, Pox Ed Bonham Communication, and that's where Jerry, who's done a lot of filmmaking documentaries of the poverty in some of the most god-awful places in the world. Around uh, the world. It's around like 20, the world. 20 different places he's done these movies on what the poor, how the poor live that you can see for free, right? Correct. That's uh, you on, Yeah, on Pox Ed Bonham Communication. So take a look at that and you'll find some remarkable work done by a former Hollywood producer. Yeah, he knows uh, movie stars. He's been around the world doing documentaries on poverty and now he's running a children's center in Haiti. Because he basically will tell us that he found the emptiness in his own life that he couldn't abide any longer. And so one of the things we like about Jerry, and there's so many things to like about him, is that he's perfect for our show. He's talk, he, he, talking about reaching out to those on the margins reaching out to those who feel unwelcome. Uh, that's what he does for real. Yeah. And his own story, just his own evolution yeah. spiritually. Right. The other thing we talk about, people on the threshold of the church deciding whether I should go in and go out. Well, here's a guy who did both. Right, exactly. And how he found his way. This guy checked out everything pretty much. And I think about it. I, I also like the way he took, we have a, a standard question we always ask our guests, and that is what do you say to the person on the threshold, either coming in or going out of the door of the church, and they can't make up their minds. And he knew that was one of our questions, and he took it so seriously that he actually, before he came on the show, wrote down his answer. So that he, beautiful. So he would have a, an answer, and it was a beautiful answer. So yeah. I think I'm as much fun as I am have having talking to you two, I think we should start to think about bringing Jerry on. What do you think? Let's improve the quality of the show. That's right. Listeners, we have a, a remarkable guest with us today, and it is my honor to introduce and welcome Gerard Thomas Straub to Deacon's Pod. Jerry was a television executive who walked away from a commercial success 
to search for deeper meaning in life. It was in an empty Italian church that he felt the overwhelming presence of God, a sea of love. Inspired by the life of St. Francis, Jerry put his filmmaking talents at the service of the poor by telling the stories through documentaries. Ultimately, Jerry felt a call to actually live with the poor. So he put aside his camera and his speaking engagements and established a center for abandoned children in Haiti, where he currently lives three weeks out of the month. Today on Deacon's Pod, we are going to hear Jerry's remarkable story that led him from Hollywood to Haiti and what he encountered along the way. Welcome, Jerry, to Deacon's Pod. Oh, well, thank you. I don't know who wrote that introduction, but it made me nervous just hearing. <laughs> it sounds so much uh, bigger and more dramatic than it was because it's just little incremental steps and not really knowing exactly what I was doing. But looking back at it, the, the breadth and scope of it for the last 25 years is really, really very stunning. Tell us how you began. Here you are in Hollywood. What, the, what were you doing in Hollywood? Who, what was your function there? Well, I spent my first 13 years as an executive at CBS in New York, and then eventually crossed over to the creative side. And in Hollywood, I was producing soap operas. I produced soap operas on all three networks, actually. That was a, a huge moneymaker for that industry. Yeah, when I was producing General Hospital, they the annual budget was $25 million. So I had $25 million to make a, a show every single weekday for the all 52 weeks of the year. And the network garnered about $125 million in commercial revenue. So <laughs> daytime soap operas sponsored those days and in, in the television networks. Back then, I made more money than I could spend. When was that? What decade are we talking about that you got started? In, in, out, when you went out to Hollywood after being a CBS executive? That would have been a, from like 1980 to 85. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. And it was two shows were in, in uh, Hollywood, one at CBS and one at ABC. And then I came to New York City in Rockefeller Center, where I produced a soap opera for NBC. So you got bored? I don't I, It was just very unfulfilling. It was one thing to be on the executive side, but when you're on the creative side, it's very cutthroat. And, and I was surrounded by people who made ridiculous amounts of money, and nobody seemed happy. People were doing drugs on the set, doing all sorts of things, and it just was empty. And for me, I, I remember exactly what happened. I was in Rockefeller Center, and I had a corner office. Looking out over the ice skating rink, this is the center of. That's the it. You made it, man. Yeah, That's right. It. Big, right there. Huge there you go. corner office, and I could have played a basketball game in 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 the office. And we would tape the show one day, and then overnight the editors edited it, and then the next day, the first thing I did was sit down and watch the show and give my approval, and then it would be off on a trail to be broadcast. And I, as I watched this show, while well, drinking coffee and reading the New York Times, probably, up came the credits, and there was my name. I was the executive producer, which is, executive producer is basically God. You know, you run the whole deal. And I watched that, I watched the credits come up, and I just had this thought to myself, who would watch this crap? 
And then in that moment, I knew I was done because it just seemed so frivolous, so unimportant. And there were so many things going on in the world. And this was like mindless entertainment. And as a little boy, I actually, in my last year of grammar school in St. Benedict Joseph Labre School in the Richmond Hill section of Queens, New York, a Vincentian priest came to talk to little boys and hope to get vocations. And he gave a spiel about missionaries in China, and it just captivated me. And I ended up in a Vincentian Minor Seminary in Princeton, New Jersey. I didn't last too long. I was overcome by lots of doubts. Why am I going to bring the gospel to China when people in my section of New York City were hardly living the, living the gospel? They talked about blacks invading our neighborhoods and all this stuff. And I'm saying, well, you're, in, you're in church and you're hearing God is love and you go outside and people are acting as if there is no God. And I had all these like doubts and I, I had a uh, an injury once at, at home at Christmas and I needed a little surgery. And by the time I went back, I was falling behind in my grades and I wasn't doing very well in Latin and religion. And these were Two subjects, and if you were going to be a priest, seemed important. And I had to leave, and I went to a Catholic high school run by the Vincentians in Brooklyn, very rough-and-tumble neighborhood. And I just gradually began to drift away from the church. I didn't really see any evidence of a loving and benevolent God anywhere. You pick up the paper any day, and you just it's just filled with one terrible thing after another. And I don't know. I just started doubting everything and drifted further. And then once I was inside of CBS, that was, that became my world. The new God. Yeah. The new God. What I would, what the thinking was like, like 90% of the people around the world believe in God and what's at the core of all religions, but mercy and compassion and kindness. And where did we see it? We just saw a widespread greed and a total disregard for the common good. Right. Homelessness was on the rise. And if you read any kind of statistics about global poverty and you, you'd hear that you know, how many billions of people are without safe drinking water and 10,000 children a day are dying of, of diseases that, that they shouldn't be dying from, including malnutrition and starvation and people living on the equivalent of a couple of bucks a day. And why aren't we concerned about this? The higher I rose within CBS, I spent a little time once volunteering at a with a priest who dealt with homeless kids in Times Square, but it just seemed to just drop into the background. So, how do you get from this uh, sense of emptiness with in, in your job and in, as an executive, and then you turn to the church and you in the world and you see nothing going on here of any any meaning and significance? How did you find what was your path to the meaning? that brought you on the road to where you are now? What did you grasp onto with your well, career being I, Actually, I began to consider myself as uh, an atheist, but it was an unsettled mm. atheism. I wanted to believe in God, but I could not believe in God. And after I left television, I actually went in the search for God. And all of my friends thought I was crazy. I'd go from Hollywood to way upstate New York, and I lived... Uh, in a little village, on the top of the village, there was an 
Orthodox monastery where the and I loved going up there, but I was searching and I just couldn't find any answers. And I I wanted to write, I wanted to write serious things, and I wrote a book about a guy who was so consumed with searching for God and he couldn't find God that he decides to end his life. And in the process of what he thinks is the last few weeks of his life, he begins writing a letter to his 10-year-old daughter in hopes that she would read it when she was an adult. And really, it was the whole, it was called like an epistolary novel. The whole thing was in the form of letters. And it's a dreadful book, but it was published and sold maybe 300 copies. I bought 50 of them. And, but after that, uh, I had in this little moment once where I envisioned St. Francis of Assisi, who I didn't know anything about, really, uh, other than he loved animals, and Vincent van Gogh. And so I saw like this image of spirituality and this image of creativity. And I began to, to write a book called The Canvas of the Soul, which was about an unpublished writer struggling with these issues. And I spent about two years working on this and it went nowhere. And I decided I was going to have to go back and to throw in this towel of being a writer writing about serious things and go back to Hollywood and earn some money. Along the way, I, I did actually get one or two like freelance jobs. I did something for Dick Clark and it was like produced some show for him. I, I maybe worked a month and got paid $35,000 or something. It was really crazy. But I would always go back and look at the, for the this search. And so this book I was writing, it stalled and I went I decided I wanted, before I go back to Hollywood, I wanted to go to Assisi, and I wanted to go to all in the south of France, where these two guys had their best experiences, and just see if somehow being in these places could inspire me to finish the book. And I was, I had a friend that I knew from earlier in my life who was a Franciscan priest, and he helped me get into a, a place in Rome called Collegio San Isidoro which was run by the Irish friars. And I was given permission to stay there. What year was this, Jerry? When this was this 1995. Happen? I went into this church and I was at this long journey from California to Rome overnight. And I was tired and I get there and I ring the bell to Collegio San Isidoro and a secretary answers it, lets me in and say, all the friars, all the priests and brothers were out at the various pontifical universities and studying. and But the day was mine. Toe showed me where my room was and would be welcome to join everyone for dinner. And so my intention was to just go out, walk the streets. And in the cloistered area, the door was open to a church. It was empty. I certainly did not go in to pray. I'm saying I'm an atheist. And I sat down on a bench and I opened up a prayer book. It was a liturgy of the hours. I knew what it was. Opened it randomly to Psalm 63. And there was this thing about the Psalm. It was about a, a said in bold print, a, a soul thirsting for God. And I read the Psalm and all of a sudden I just was just filled with this sense that God loved me, that God was real. And I can't explain it. I just, I really, I can't explain it. Sometimes I think that it was that scripture about knocking. Right. It's like I've been knocking for 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so here in this little empty church, 
I remember standing up and bowing before the tabernacle and feeling this sense of electricity. And I went to dinner at, that night and the priests were like all interested in like the, I knew Alec Baldwin and Demi Moore. I know all these Hollywood <laughs> people. I worked with Elizabeth Death. And they were like all this. Yeah, all this, yeah, sure. All about the showbiz stuff. And here I am just struggling with trying to be friendly and stuff. But what was happening to me? And a couple of days in, the guardian, the priest that was in charge of the, the friary, asked me if I wanted to, wanted to talk. And... I would. They had liturgy every morning, and in the choir loft, they did the uh, morning prayer side by side. You know, each side saying verses, mm -hmm. all very yeah. beautiful. Then they the would go downstairs, and the thirteen priests lived there. So there were thirteen priests and me, and they would have liturgy, and it was really quite moving. But when it came time to receive the Eucharist, I I didn't put out my hands, which I think surprised them. Because I hadn't been to hadn't been to church in thirteen years, and so right. the priest, uh, Father Liam, we sat in his office and had what I came to understand was a three-hour confession. Mm. You can do a lot of not so good things when you're in Hollywood. <laughs> I probably did them all. It was the eighties. Come on, modern time. You wanted to see how empty that was. You were there the right time, from what yeah. I hear. But anyway, yeah. we ended up just three hours in his office, kneeling in the church, receiving absolution, and the next morning I received the Eucharist. And I, I think for the next three years, I would have had to been like kidnapped or something not to go to got to go to mass. Right. Yeah, well, that's what so, a, that's what a nanosecond of God contact does. You're ruined for life after that. Doesn't take much, and then it just it's keeps generating. So I think when we need to let the listeners know. See, we know this, but we haven't. I don't think we've said it out loud. You are now in Haiti. You've had this tremendous journey. You've had the you went from Hollywood to back to New York to making documentary films to visiting the poor all around the world fantastic journey, which, by the way, if they get your book, they can read about it there, too. But you now live in Haiti, and I don't think we've mentioned the word orphanage. What's going on? How did you get there? And tell us about that and how that must be. And That's that a is. really complicated story, but I was drawn to Haiti because of uh, filming Mud Pies and Kites, because I, I filmed in Haiti just two weeks before the earthquake, and then I was invited to go back there was a uh, plane load of uh, doctors and they had one empty, doctors and nurses and they had one empty seat and I was called to maybe film them. I had a little bit of a reputation. And so we landed. And so I spent like uh, a week living in this hospital, one of the few that weren't destroyed. And then I just kept coming back every couple of months over the next year to see. I was really drawn to it. And then I had this uh, opportunity to go back, and I, there was one kid I met who was very sick, and I went to try to find out what was wrong with her and get her help. And in the process of just being going around the streets, going from clinic to clinic, trying to find someone that knew what this little girl's problem was, I noticed that all the women were, were selling stuff on the streets. They put things on their heads, everything you can possibly imagine. And toothbrushes, the sneakers, the whatever. And they're dragging the kids around all day. So I thought, hmm, what could it take to have a little 
Children's Center, where moms on their way to work could just drop the kids off. And all we had to do was feed them and play with them. How hard could this be? And I might be deep, but I'm not smart. (laughs) (laughs) And so this thing started. I named it after St. Clair of Assisi. And the mothers started dropping the kids off. And within a month, 22 of them never came back for the kids. 22 kids living with me. So I had to learn how to run an orphanage. And I, 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 people stole from me. They, I, I went through hell. But the thing was, is that I really loved the children and began to find a, 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 a richness that I, I had never experienced. And I've lived through some really traumatic, violent times right now. It's the worst it's ever been. Just uh, a week before I came back to Florida, the gangs went in one neighborhood not too far from us and slaughtered 100 people, including a mother with seven children. And they don't just kill them. They decapitate them. They burn them alive. It's it's the most barbaric thing you can imagine. I have to travel around with a policeman with a bulletproof vest on, and he has a machine gun and a handgun. I said, what about me? Do I get a vest? I know, I, and I, I preached to the children nonviolence, and, and so I didn't ever have security before it just became so important. And they almost kidnapped me in January, but the cops spotted that what they do is they pull up next to a car. They did this to a, to a nun, and they forced the car off the road, and then they got out and they shot her to death. They did this to a woman an Adventist woman going to church on Saturday with her two ch- teenage daughters, pushed her off the road, shot them dead, and then set their car on fire. So this is really hard. This is really... How many kids do you have there now? I have 45. One time we had 72. I have 45. But we have another 10 that come for the day, or okay. especially during the summer, the, the, many of the women that work there they're, they're single moms, and so they bring their kids to work. So this place is just overrun with kids in the summertime. And they're get, there all the time. They don't go to school. Do you get your funding primarily from donations? Yeah, well, we have a 501c3. And okay. uh, the funding really comes from uh, people that have went to one of my 250 presentations at churches and schools and universities all, during all those years. Or they read one of my books. So I have some degree of like credibility. So they, I don't have to prove what I'm doing. And, and the, the bad side is that everyone in Haiti thinks I'm loaded. And they don't understand that you're not getting paid for this. No, I don't get paid. Right. Uh, I don't take anything. Uh, 100% of the money goes to Haiti, except what I give to JetBlue to get there. And so I'm asked for everything from everybody. I've brought many families out of Cité Soleil and given, gotten apartments for older women, mm-hmm. usually relatives of some of the kids that live with me. But everything is so expensive now because of the gang violence. The gangs have literally encircled Port-au-Prince, so they cut off all supply lines. So gasoline and food is not getting in. So the people are hungry. People are starving. And uh, for example, uh, a few months ago, I was paying $25 a gallon for diesel fuel to keep the generators running. So it's, it's very expensive to run all this. Right. 
And it's month to month, whether you're going to make, from I think what I could see five, in your book. Yeah, it's one month to month. In the first five years, I never, ever, I was running a deficit all the time. First three years, and I owed like $60,000 on my personal credit cards. Oh, yeah. So which of your four websites that I have here can people uh, donate? Let's, but while we're talking about yeah, yeah. making it at the end of the month, let's get this in. We I, go I off don't actually know the, the names of these websites. But All right, uh, GerardStub.com. Yeah, and that one is something new in which we're trying to, what I really want to do is be able to get, to go back into speaking and try to talk to people directly and raise funds that way. And the Paulist Fathers invitation to give this Gallagher lectures the first time. So the board has tried to put together something to give people a lot of information. So I've never, I've always been like, I, I feel like I've lived a very hidden life there while I'm in Haiti because I don't, I have no social media. I do nothing. I'm not speaking to anybody. The whole focus is just going there and, and being children. So what about what about Santa Chiara? Santa Chiara, org. that website. Uh, is there a donate uh, button there? Yeah, Santa. It's just Santa, S-A-N-T-A, Chiara, C-H-I-A-R-A-C-C, org. Okay. And that, that there is a donate button there. All right. So Santa Chiara. And the immediate Chiara. need is finishing this school. I don't remember now. About thirty or 40,000 short. <laughs> oh, is that all? Tom, come on. Right, right yeah, really? Why are we fooling around? You got it. Yeah. Well, let's not forget, banks. you just mentioned the Gallagher talk, and that yeah. is being sponsored by the Paulist Fathers out of St. Andrews in Michigan. I, I think actually it's under Catholic Information Center of Grand Rapids, Michigan, and it's on September the 28th. I think it's at yeah. 7, 7 p.m.? I think so. Is it going to be streamed? Do we know what yes, it's going to be? going to be uh, uh, live, on uh, stream live. I think people can watch it anywhere. Okay. All right, great. All right. <laughs> Make sure they tell at the information center, they tell the people online where the donate button is, too. A lot yeah. of folks out here might want to help you out this month. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago, I was on my way to, to Haiti in the airport in Fort Lauderdale, and I saw an NBC host, and his name, I'm drawing a blank on his name. Anyway, I talked to him all about Haiti, Jose Ballard Diaz. Oh, yeah. Diaz, Diaz Ballard. Diaz, Diaz Ballard. Ballard. And, Come on. And we had this Come on. wonderful conversation. And he gave me his card. I gave him my card. And then I went back to tell him something I forgot to tell him. And he had already called someone in, in his staff. And, and then a couple of weeks later, I, I was invited to be a guest. And then the little interview section, and it was all about this uh, lady, uh, nurse that was kidnapped. Right. And I was only for on for four or five minutes. Yeah, I saw you. At, oh, and yeah. I just mentioned the school. He was saying bye bye, Jerry. And I said, Wait, <laughs> one more thing going up to school. And the we gangs. got two little over two thousand dollars in donations from thirty something MSNBC viewers, and it was even on Fox the next day. So I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. both sides. So last week, my wife and I came into contact again with some old friends who we had not seen in a long time. And they used to have a lot of faith. They used to go to church. They weren't Catholics, but they were very, very good, very avid Protestants. So when we see them, the first thing they say to us is, we envy your faith. And I'm like, why would you envy our faith? You and they're like, well, we don't believe anymore. And I asked, they allowed me to ask them why. And I asked them why. And they said, well, because for the last three years, one of them had been praying and praying and was getting no answers. So this is not like your story. I think it's completely different. But what I like, but I think 
I see the conversion, and I want to talk to you about this for a minute, Jerry, if you don't mind. I'm looking at your current book, the one that we could talk about today, Reading Thomas Merton and Longing for God in Haiti, and on page 340, and this book is probably much toward the end, and you've said this in a couple of places. I like this book because it's really a meditation. And anyway, you say, quote, I'd been drawn to Italy in 1995 by the life of St. Francis of Assisi. While I didn't believe in God, the lies of the saints greatly attracted me and sparked my imagination. I wanted to understand how St. Francis could believe that poverty was our highest calling, end quote. After reading your book and talking to you now and talking to friends and the three of us doing this kind of like for a, a vocation, I want to press you, and please don't be offended. Did you really not believe in God, or were you just trying to find where God was because he wasn't present in your life? Because it seems to me when I read your book that you've always had a faith. But maybe so many of us, we don't hear God in our faith. Am I pressing you too far or trying to parse it out too much? Can you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, this one priest that got me to go to San Isidoro. His name was Father Reginald Redland, and he was a Franciscan priest. He was the president of St. Bonaventure University during a very tumultuous period. And at one, one time in my life, I did go back to the church. And I even, I was even in the diaconate program, but I just, I don't know, it didn't really work out. Right. But I stayed in touch, and Father Redland was the pastor of the church in New Jersey where I lived. And I stayed in touch with him. And one day I was invited to be a, on a talk show, a television show, and Father Redland was there, and, and he couldn't believe it when I told him I was now an atheist. I wasn't going to talk about God. I was taking the other side. It was a confrontational show. And so, but through the years, once or twice a year, I would meet with Father Redland and have lunch with him. And I told him a story about a neighbor of mine who was very sick and alone, an old man, and and apparently no one really liked him. He was a racist. He had all sorts of problems. I tended to him every day. I went, I cared for him. I got him food. And one time when he was really sick, I got him a, some kind of a visiting nurse to come. And the nurse shows up and she was black. And I said, oh, he's, a, he's an okay guy, but he really... He has troubles with, with black people. And I said, so if he gives you a hard time, then just leave or something. And at any rate, he went in and she went in with me. And I said, to, the guy's name was Roy. I said, Roy, this is my friend and she's here to help you. And he took, showed her, stuck out his hand to her and held her hand. And he said, any friend of Jerry's is a friend of mine. And eventually, Roy died. And Father Redland knew all about this story. And I told him in great detail one of our lunches. And as we left, he was going back to the Friary St. Stephen's, and I was going to the, my church, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. <laughs> and I, we were separated by a little distance. And he said, Jerry, yes, Father, why did you help Roy? And I said, well, he's my neighbor. And what I heard many years later, Father Redland used to use that talk about his friend Jerry, who said he was an atheist, 
but actually lived Christianity, understood the core message of Jesus. So I think it was always there, but it just, again, it just, it was, it didn't, wasn't, didn't penetrate me. And there were lots of other things, church politics and the way people talk about stuff. So many things. I just, I didn't see, I didn't see how people of faith were not any different than everybody else. Yeah. You know what I was thinking with all this when I was, if you'll allow me, Jerry. When I was reading your book and these stories and stuff, and I was, and okay, you re, you you rejected this shallow Christianity of your youth because it's like, well, where does the rubber hit the road in this? This is only real in my mind, apparently. And then you went to what all America says is success. You went to Hollywood. You made money. You had a corner office. You got the whole thing. And then you found out, well, this is nothing. <laughs> and you know what your problem is, Jerry, is you're a deep person. That's the real, that's the, con- that was the continuity I saw. It's, I'm walking away from this because it's shallow and I'm going to try the polar opposite. So you're doing your research there and you're like, well, this is empty. And then somehow, because I, I don't think you would be satisfied with anything shallow because you are a deep person and you're reading Merton. And the stuff you I'm looking through the various authors you're reading is because you did your homework. You were searching just to have those references scattered throughout your book. You're a deep person. That's your curse, Jerry. So you got to get to the real stuff somewhere. And, in the and polis- that's my curse. You hit it. I've never, I don't fit in anywhere, it seems. And I never thought about it like that. I'm a deep person because I don't think my, I don't think of myself that way. People now, they talk about me and maybe Father Rick or something in Haiti, and they say we're saints and all that. And we go, oh, please don't hang that on me. It's a curse. Because Dorothy, Day, gets- Dorothy Day said the same thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, as a matter of fact, I was really good friends with uh, Jim Forrest. Now, oh, yeah. We yeah. Were, so remind me of Dorothy Day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's nice. No one ever accused Casey and me of that. That's for sure. <laughs> that's and, and Casey ran a soup kitchen, too. So, you know, still. <laughs> But, but to follow up on Dennis's observation, that depth comes through in those Vimeos, you're, the films that I saw. The films. You're, you're, you're going to church. If a father's going to church and you're going to the uh, museum there, that uh, it takes a special eye to be able to, to see things. I was looking at part of the video you did. I think it was called the Mud Pies and Kites. Oh, Mud Pies and Kites. Oh, my God. And yeah. that, uh, I tell you what, you need, that's a hard movie to watch. When you uncover, when you put the camera on a child's foot sticking out of the rubble from, my God, if that doesn't choke you up. Um, I used to say that I make films nobody wants to see with money I don't have. Yeah. There you yeah. Go. It's another feel-good summer thriller, right, Jerry? <laughs> yeah. Nobody it's wants a- to come home after a hard day at work or do whatever they're doing and watch people right. suffering and dying. And, right, and exactly. put, put this on our 95-inch TV exactly. screens while yeah. we have our... Yeah, full course meal. And that's but... that's it. I could, was I would pour myself into these films. Martin Sheen narrated one. Bono gave me music for one, and but then the kids watched them though. There was one scene in one movie. I forget the name of the movie. I think it was the Fragrant Spirit of Life, maybe, and uh, it was about uh, a little boy we found in the outback in in Uganda, 
uh, a boy and a girl, and we came across them. It was really in a very remote area, and they were laying on the ground, Sam and Esther, and they were naked and starving, and there was like a circle around them where they were like trying to, what they had polio. I didn't even know that. So they were, and their little sister comes out of the, uh, the weeds. She had gone to get water to bathe them. And it's a 13 minute scene. And I ended every presentation I gave at all these high schools with Sam and Esther. And people never, ever forget that scene. People still write to me about it. And the kids would, I remember once a big school, I think the Christian Brothers or something ran it. It might have been a thousand people in the auditorium. And the thing was over and all these kids stood and gave me a standing ovation. And the principal of the school came up and said, we don't get this. Here you are thundering like an Old Testament prophet to give your life away to serve the poor. To, to just take Jesus seriously and do what Jesus said. And they give you a standing ovation. And I said, the problem is you guys don't press the kids enough. You don't give them a real reason to do this. I remember once getting invited to speak in the Bronx in New York City, near Yankee Stadium, and really rough neighborhood that was an after school, like a school of religious ed thing for kids in public school. These were the worst kids in the Bronx, okay? And I go in there. And the guy that brought me in said that last month we had a visitor and he walked out halfway through his presentation. And I said, well, don't worry about it. I'll win them over. No, no worries. And they told them, put their cell phones down. But then all the cell phones were lit up. And then I would show a scene of a dying boy in, in Peru and then another scene. And I would talk in between. Gradually, all the cell phones were off. And they had this, like a table set up in this room to sign up to do volunteer work. And so the whole semester of the school, nobody signed up. After my talk, there was lines to sign up. Not only that, they were like teenagers. They actually went to Uganda to visit Sam and Esther. This was a life-changing journey for those teenagers. They just walked in there and I just hit them with the truth. Showed the reality of what life was really like for the poor. And they wanted to go see Sam and Esther. Uh, when I heard that, it was like, I really couldn't even believe it. I think that's where the rubber meets the road. You're changing hearts and minds. For a listener, it's not just Haiti. How many places, poverty-struck places in the world have you gone to, Jerry, and videographed and I, I think I made 24 documentary films. One was on peace and nonviolence with my really good friend, Father John Deere, former Jesuit. He's still a mm. priest, but there's one, one amazing man. And I did one on prayer. I was invited to give a talk on prayer at a secular Franciscan conference. And I said, I can't really talk about prayer. And this guy kept calling me and saying, well, you write so eloquently about it in your book. I said, yeah, I can write about it, but I'm not going to get up there and talk about it. And he kept calling me and I kept saying, no. And I said, what don't you understand? <laughs> no. And after the third time he called me, I said, I'll tell you what, if I make a film on prayer, can I just show the film? Will that work? And they said, you'll make a film? And they said, I said, yeah. And I hung up the phone. I said, oh my God, what did I do? And so I did this little film. It's called Holy Pictures. And boy, oh boy, I love it. But again, you've, you've paid a personal price going to these places 
watching oh, oh, you, this I'm sorry, suffering. you asked me how many places. I, I've been to uh, Kenya and Uganda five times, El Salvador, Honduras, Mexico, Peru, Brazil, Jamaica, India. Oh, my God. India was a real... India came about because the minister general of the whole Franciscan order, the successor to St. Francis, read the sun and moon over Assisi and wrote me a personal letter. And he said in the letter that in 100 years, when people read about St. Francis, they'll read your book. And he knew at the time I was coming to Rome every year. I actually never went to college, but I was invited to teach a course at the Pontifical Gregorian University. <laughs> and I remember the first day of class, I wrote a letter to my a postcard to my nephew. I said, you know, my first day in college and I'm the professor. <laughs> and it was like just crazy stuff. But at any rate, he wanted me to visit him, to come talk with him. And I knocked on the door of the headquarters there. I forget what they call it, the Coria. And right outside the walls of the Vatican. And when I... The brother opened the door, and, and I'm standing there in, in jeans and a Yankee baseball hat. I'm standing here to see the Giacomo Bini, Minister General. And I said, well, this guy looked at me like, what, what the hell are you? <laughs> and he said, he's busy. He says, there was a meeting of all the provincials from around the world. Get out of here. And I said, do me a favor. Just tell him that Jerry is here, Jerry Stroud. And the guy goes, and he comes back. <laughs> And he says, the minister general wondered if you could wait for him for, and have lunch with him. And could you come in? I said, sure, I'll wait. And I came in and I walk into the big refectory with all these provincials and Giacomo and I sit in the corner. And I said to him that I really didn't understand St. Francis. I could understand St. Francis' love of the poor, but I, I don't get this love of poverty. I said, we need money, but I really want to understand. And I have this idea. Do you think it would be possible for me to go and live with friars around the world who truly serve the poor? And he said to me, well, what, what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. I'm just going to go. I'm going to listen and look, and maybe I'll write something. Maybe I'll take pictures. I don't know. If this was a Jesuit, that would not constitute a plan, but it worked for the Francis. <laughs> and, after, and after lunch... All these guys are looking at me. Well, who is this guy intruding in our meeting? This, you know, and he marched me to the office of justice and peace and the integrity of creation. I never heard such a term. <laughs> went in and the friar sitting there was a guy from Ireland, a priest from Ireland. And Giacomo said, this is Brother Jerry. And uh, I want him to tell them what the deal was. And then Giacomo leaves. And there's this priest who's like shaking his head. He said, well, I'm going to India in three weeks. You want to come? I said, okay. And that's how it all began. And Giacomo, I did a, a photo essay book called When Did I See You Hungry? And Brother, and Brother Giacomo wrote the introduction. And I was really told by one of the members of the governing group of priests that the minister general doesn't write an introduction for anybody, not even a priest, let alone, it was basically let alone a lowly lay person like you. <laughs> And the Brother Giacomo, he really wrote the most incredible introduction. And I heard that at one of the meetings, he said to the friars, he said, the brothers should love the poor the way Brother Jerry does. And wow, so that's know. where I got into, I got to, I, wherever I landed, a Franciscan priest had to meet me and take care of me. So 
it's good to have a local who knows what's going on where <laughs> yeah, not really? to go and keep you alive. It's good. The real story. Yeah. Nice. That's great. So you got but you, you got to have PTSD. Just being in Haiti right now, Tom and oh, I know well, something about Haiti. Our diocese has a mission well, I, What house. happened is the, the post-traumatic stress disorder is very, very real for me because I was in, in Uganda in 2009 is where I met Sam and Esther. And we saved those kids' lives. And I was touring all sorts of hospitals. And I brought, I just my third or fourth trip to Africa. So I brought cash in my pocket to help anyone that I came across, not from the film budget or anything. And I was in one hospital and I saw this kid who was really sick. And I, I, I talked to his father. And the father was about to leave to walk two days to a village uh, to sell everything he had and then walk back to get the kid this medicine he needed. And the medicine cost 25 bucks. And I said, $25. So I gave him the $25 so the kid could get the medicine. Uh, when I was in Africa, I got sick. I had uh, malaria, and I was staying with the Columban Missionary Sisters, Italian order. And I really thought I was going to die. And they wanted to bring me to a hospital. I had filmed in all these hospitals. And I'm laying on the bed. And the sister said, we're going to take you to a hospital. I said, sister, any chance you could take me to Lourdes? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to go to a hospital. And then they assured me that it, there was a, a good hospital for Westerners. And really just a super injection of something got rid of the, the malaria for me. And I thought to myself, the people I'm filming... We're never, ever going to have the 50 bucks for that injection. And they were right. just going to die. I went from Uganda to, to Haiti and the earthquake. And then I saw the most horrible things you could possibly imagine. Mm. Surgery being performed outdoors without anesthesia. Yep. I filmed the lady that's in the mud pies with her leg amputated. It's just, it was really, it took me, a, I still to this day, have episodes where I, I cannot function. I'm just like get blinded and I have to just lay down because it's just the, the horror of I've seen, you know, I don't know how to make any sense of all this. I really want to write about it. It's 25 years of being in the worst places on earth and seeing some of the most horrific things and and how to delve deeply into that and talk about it. I don't know. It reminds me water. of the, the book uh, Catch-22. You can't make sense out of this. It, this is it's pure evil. You've been able to put together presentations that expose the beast for what it is. I, I came across one of the things, I think it was in a video that I, I'd like to read, the video Mud Pies and Kites. Maybe it was oh. a different source. But I, I think that craziness you're talking about, how do we explain it? It says, or you wrote, we are slow to compassion because we are quick to exploit others for our own gain. We're slow to compassion because of our own misguided sense of scarcity, where nothing is enough because we do not trust the abundance of God. No economist, no, nobody, and that's my business, nobody ever said there's not enough. The problem is the distribution system. Who gets it? How we pay some Saudi uh, paid a, a billion dollars for a soccer player because they're buying soccer teams and, and, and sports franchises. A billion dollars. What would the billion dollars do for your people in Haiti, Jerry? I'm trying to build a school now. I'm really struggling because I can't. I can no longer send the children to to an external school. 
because the streets are too dangerous. The gangs will kidnap the kids because they know a parent will pay anything to get them back. And so I, I started this building and I didn't have the money. And I just said, go ahead. And I, this, this is it. This was the thing about St. Francis. He said, if you had nothing, you had to depend upon God for everything. That was his love of poverty. And uh, I remember making a film in Philadelphia in the Kensington section, a soup kitchen run by the Franciscans. And there was a, a friar who was making potato soup. And I'm in the kitchen. I'm wired. I said, what are you making, Brother Xavier? He said, potato soup. And I look around. I say, well, where are the potatoes? And Brother Xavier said, oh, we have no potatoes. You have no potatoes and you're making potato soup? How does this work? And he just said to me, well, God will provide. And I thought, uh, how pious. But it makes no sense. This line is starting to form. It's in the winter. It's cold. And a few minutes later, knock on the side door. Xavier opens it up and there's an off-duty policeman. Tells Xavier that he was at the farmer's market. He saw these 50-pound bags of potatoes on sale. He just threw them in his trunk, figuring, man, the priest at the St. Francis said could use these. And they had, so I, I remember a saying, I make my films the way Brother Xavier makes potato soup. I'm starting <laughs> a school in Haiti. And the money is starting to come, but I need a lot more. If I could raise one more issue, again, your book that we I, we mentioned before, Reading Thomas Merton and Longing for God in Haiti. Now, you've talked a lot about St. Francis. You've talked a lot about the Franciscans. You've talked about a lot of your journey. How does Thomas Merton fit into this? We all know who Tom—we here know who Thomas Merton is. How has that impacted your journey? And so share with us your thoughts on how he figures into the whole poverty issue. Well, Thomas Merton, I, I really was reading him even in my atheist days, and I was always drawn to to his journey, to his story. After I wrote the book on St. Francis and St. Clair, I wanted to write a book about on on St. Benedict and Thomas Merton. I struggled for years. To, I met many different versions of this book. I became friends with a man named Jonathan Montaldo, who was the head of the Merton Center at Bellman University. And yeah, probably the world's best expert on Thomas Merton. And we just had all sorts of conversations. And we even once wanted to actually do a film. None of that ever materialized, but I kept writing for all of these years. I would bring Thomas Merton to Haiti with me and read him by candlelight, read him in top tops. I had no car. And it was this introduction to the more contemplative life I also was completely enamored by his uh, dialogue with Buddhism, which I thought was really wonderful that we can learn from other faiths and enrich our own faith. So it was everything that was about him. And I always felt drawn to monasticism, believe it or not. And I was actually invited to give a talk at the Trappist Monastery where Merton lived in the cloistered area where he yeah. spoke to the the young monks. It was a, and I had to stand up there and, and in front of all these Trappist monks and their habits and talk about poverty and prayer, believe it or not. Wow. It was a great experience. So Martin yeah. was, and I finally, after, and I, I put many versions of these books out to people, Catholic publishers that published my books. 
And one after another, I rejected it and rejected it. And finally, I just, I said, I'm going to write it the way I want to write it. And I wasn't making films anymore, but I still had the entity, Pox at Bonham Communications. So I said, well, I can't make films, but I'll just publish books. So I published it myself, basically. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I have done no advertising. And it's sold, the, I don't know how many it sold, maybe only 300 copies, probably. I just want to say that I think this book of yours, first of all, the writing reminds me of Merton in its honesty. And I would use this book for adult faith formation as someone who used to be in that line of work, that uh, this is a book reading Thomas Merton and longing for God in Haiti. Uh, it's an easy book to read. It's not a, in the sense that it's not technical or anything. And uh, there, is there is so much spiritual wealth scattered throughout it of the various people that Jerry calls on, like Merton and Murray Bodo or Franciscan sources. What do you mean? You name it, it's in there. Jim Finley, whatever, just all kinds of people. And, of course, a lot of Merton. And what you see here is you see this imperfect but deep. I already gave you deep, so I'm gonna, you're going to have to live with imperfect, Jerry, all right? Oh, that <laughs> I can claim. There you go. <clears throat> this imperfect but deep layperson who is, and what you see him doing here is trying to put it together, which is what Merton did. When I look at Merton's stuff and I step back from it, it was just a guy trying to put the pieces together. It was a guy who was wrestling with himself. And, of course, now that Merton's diaries have been released, you can see the raw material. It's not the finished book where we get this idea that this guy's having lunch with God and floating on clouds in Kentucky. But this is no. a guy struggling through all his stuff, which we all have stuff. And so and Jerry shows you a lot of his struggle, his stuff. And it's, this is how mature adults put together a life of the gospel. This is a manual in the sense of you see someone modeling for you what it's like to do your homework and to put it into practice. And not that everybody's going to go to Haiti, but I always told people, you don't have to do what I'm doing, pick a pile and grab a shovel. There's plenty of places to do this. But this is very instructive just from that point of view. It's an interesting story to read, your story, all that. But, oh, Deacon yes. Dennis, did you just agree to write a blurb like that? Absolutely. <laughs> if you can write that and send it to well, me, I'm gonna do I will this put it, because I have no form of advertising. I can only share it with my journal readers. Well, well, listen, Jerry, you're new to the show. The readers, longtime listeners will know. I am on this book also going to give you the Deacon Dolan money back guarantee. You buy this book and you don't like it, you send it to me, and I will give you your money back personally, and I'll give it to someone who's deep like Jerry and me. <laughs> but again, I just think that, first of all, you read Merton, back to my theory on you, Mr. Staub, you read Merton as an atheist because you're a deep person and game recognizes game. So you read Merton and you go, this guy's not making this up or getting this from a book. This guy's doing his homework. There's something here for me. So even you were just drawn to that, and I see that quality in this book. That's what I'm saying. I see the same wrestling with the real world stuff in the demands of the gospel. It's just, it is a lesson in how to do it for any adult who's serious about their faith. That's how I would market that book. And, and I, I have like over to... 100 books uh, by or about Merton. 
Yeah. Indeed. But the striking part, when you went to that school, Jerry, and you got the attention of these young kids who aren't interested in anything, speaks volumes to the fact that what they're looking for in their life. And for them to pack up and, and, and travel and go visit these places, I think might be a formula for how we rebuild post-COVID and the world of emptiness and our secularization and what's yeah. going on. It's only where the rubber beats the road. It's, you're not going to find the spirit in places that the spirit has vacated. Although I think the there was is- one other example. I once uh, did a presentation at a secular university in, in upstate New York, in Buffalo, I think. And there was only like 20, 20 college students came, but I gave the whole deal, the whole two-hour presentation to 20 kids. And afterwards, a young lady who was just graduating came up to me, and I, I showed a lot of a film called Patience of a Saint. It was about a doctor and who lived in Peru for 20-something years, serving handicapped children and seriously ill children. And she said to me, I really want to maybe, when I'm finished, when I graduate, was very soon, go maybe volunteer with Dr. Tony and I said, okay, give me your email address. When I get home, I'll send you all of his contact info. And I did. And she wound up going to Peru and stayed there for almost six months. And Dr. Tony, who I'm in regular contact with, said that she was the best volunteer he ever had. She went home to wherever she lived and announced to her parents she was moving to India to live in Mother Teresa's house of the dying. This is one girl. One young lady, one screening, completely changed her life. This was what I thought of as the power of film at the service of the poor. Are all your films Wonderful. or any of your films? I saw the... Uh... They're, they're all available for free, downloading from the Poxabonum. You can stream, whatever that is. Yeah. 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 They're all um, So maybe you make that uh, announcement when you give the uh, your presentation on the 28th. I'll be probably so happy that I got through it <laughs> that I won't um, say anything. Well, let me ask one of the questions that we ask our guests is that there are a lot of folks who are either leaving the church or maybe some people might want to commit to the church. Your experience, you being a seeker, what would you say to someone who you encountered who said to you, hey, Jerry, I'm done with the church. I've had it. I think that's part of your experience. Or on the other hand, somebody who came to you, hey, I see you're doing some good stuff. What's the church have to offer me? What would you tell either of those people? Well, this morning, someone sent me something about what was going to happen today. And they mentioned that somewhere along the line, this kind of Paulist theme was going to come up. And I thought to myself, well, I can talk about the poor. I can talk, but I don't want to talk about the church. <laughs> so what I did is I wrote a little something, okay? Because I didn't want to just freelance this. And because it's a serious question. And it needs a serious answer. So this is what I wrote. I say, I wouldn't give advice to either person. But if someone had left the church and was thinking about coming back, I would share with them my experience, which has been deeply enriching. I would advise them to try to ignore the divisiveness they will find that can be nasty, as in the political realm, where people seem to see the other side as the enemy and have no interest in entering into dialogue with the other side. I've heard from the mouths of some very devout Catholics the most vitriolic, almost vulgar remarks about Pope Francis 
that left me speechless. I would tell the person thinking about coming back to the church to focus on reconnecting with Catholicism's mystical tradition and to discover the power of prayerful contemplation. I would advise them to focus on the words and teachings of Jesus and not get sidetracked by dogmatic assertions. I would strongly advise them to explore the church's long tradition of emphasizing the need to care for the poor and the Pope's focus on the duty of compassion for other living things, the value of community life, of emptying of the self, suppression of the ambitious egotism, which I knew all too well about, and distance from material positions. I would suggest they cultivate mindfulness and silence. One of the most profound nights of my life was spent on the University of Notre Dame campus in a private meeting with Gustavo Gutierrez. And I know people have all sorts of ideas about liberation theology and say all sorts of things. But to me, that was what excited me when I came back. And to spend the night with him talking about all these things was incredible. And this is where it's at. And this is where it's at. It's serving of the poor, learning firsthand about mercy and compassion and forgiveness and kindness to everyone you meet. I see the way people treat clerks at a checkout line. We're just so dismissive of everybody. There's no appreciation of the true value of life, that every life has profound meaning. I have one little boy and his mother. Mother gave birth to him in the street in City Soleil, in the dirt, somehow cut the cord, handed the baby, still covered with birth fluid, to a stranger, an older woman, and said, hold my baby, I'll be right back. I'm going for help. And she never came back. The old lady tried to take care of the kid as best she could for four or five days, giving him tea. Mm. I don't know nothing, but I know you don't give kids tea, babies, infants tea. And they brought him to me. Well, she brought, she knocked on my gate. My staff didn't want to take him because he was too sick, too little, too fragile. And I said, if we let this child go, he'll die. We're not letting him go. I named him Moyes. The uh, Haitian government actually made me his legal guardian. He has my name, as do six other kids who who were discarded like that. One child was his mother on the second day of his life, left him on a garbage dump. Somebody heard the baby crying and brought him to me. Just, I think, maybe three weeks ago, the Haitian government came to me, somebody from the government, from child welfare. And they knocked on my gate, and they had a nine-year-old girl who was what they call a restavec. A restavec is a term used for when someone sells a child into a domestic servitude. The girl was a slave, basically, living in someone's house, cleaning, doing all this stuff no one wants to do. At the end of the day, they would feed her whatever little leftovers. And often the man in the house would abuse the girl. This little girl ran away, and somehow she got into the hands of the officials. And they didn't bother. They don't call me. They're just going to knock on the door because they know I'm not going to say no. And her name is just Baby Love. That's her name. We don't know when she was born. We don't know anything about her. She, we think she's nine years old. She's never been to school. She's been there three weeks now, and she's 
running around and having fun and being a little girl, not worrying about anyone abusing. You can't put a value on that because you can put your head down on the pillow at night. No, I did good. I did something that had some meaning. Thank you, Jerry. This, yes, it's been a wonderful comment. Uh, yeah, very good. Special thanks to El Jefe, Paul Snatchko, and our editor, David Dalt. The Deacon's Pod is powered by the Paulus Fathers. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts, and of course, at our own website, www.deaconspod.com. That's D-E-A-C-O-N-S with an S, Deacon's, plural, pod, all one word, dot com. And of course, we'd love to hear your comments at our email address, which is deaconspod, again, with an S, deacons, at paulist.org. That's P-A-U-L-I-S-T dot org. Love to hear from you. That's our offering. We thank you for being with us. On behalf of our colleagues at the Missionary Society of St. Paul the Apostle, we wish you a future brighter than any past. Till next time.